0: A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello again. This is A Million Other Choices. And I appreciate you listening in today. I am your host, Kim. Visiting the beautiful city of Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, for a very sad case of murder. I found this case when I was researching another case and discovered that this one is actually pretty notorious. So you might ask yourself, how does such a huge true crime buff like me not know every homicide case in Canada? Well, to be honest, I only started watching the news a few years ago when I met my fiancé, Tim. Um, he's a news watcher, and I never was. So before that, I always got my crime fixes from like shows like Dateline, Forensic Files, those kinds of things. And I only started this podcast in August... And I decided to do mostly Calgary and Canadian cases. And that's when I realized that there are so many horrible murders here in our little friendly, polite country. So I'm kind of learning these cases with you. Which does remind me, if you do have any case suggestions, please send them my way. I am simply compiling a list and I'm just working my way through them. I have this... um, friend and she on her facebook page is just posts of like missing dogs like help this person find their lost dog and for me it's strange i feel like i'm helping someone if i can just say the victim's name talk about them in like a public forum i really don't try to analyze it anymore it's just kind of the new me ever since taylor's death and um i just talk about murder victims like constantly so, I'm sure my family is very happy that I have found this outlet now instead of filling their brains with all kinds of horror stories. And speaking of horror stories, this is the murder of Carissa Birdo. Bridgewater, Nova Scotia is a river town south of Halifax. It spans the Lahave River Valley, and pictures that I've seen of it are really scenic, and it's a very picturesque town. Being in the Maritimes, the, the summers are very humid and hot, and the winters are cold and damp. The average income there is lower than the provincial average, and the majority of the job sector is in the Michelin factory, or otherwise in retail. It was once home to actor Donald Sutherland. Carissa Bordeaux was your typical 12-year-old. She lived with her mom Penny and her boyfriend Vernon McCumber in an apartment that was close to the Sobies, where Penny worked as a cashier. Carissa had recently gone to live with her dad because as many... 12-year-old girls before her, she sometimes didn't always get along with her mom. Really typical 12-year-old girl stuff. And any of you that have been mothers, stepmothers, or adopted mothers to a 12-year-old girl, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The eye-rolling, the sighing, those shruggy responses of whatever. I totally feel you. I was there too. It's not just you, it's the hormones. But she found that after about six months, that she was really missing her mom, so she went back to live with her. Around the early dinner hour on January 27, 2008, Penny and Carissa drove to the Sobeys to get a few items. Penny and Carissa argued in the car a bit, so Penny went into the Sobeys, leaving Carissa just to sit and brood in the car. When she returned, Carissa wasn't in the car. Figuring she had stormed off, she walked sort of around the parking lot and then got into the car and drove around to look for her. She went to all the different places where she might have gone to cool off, but she couldn't find her. She had left her cell phone behind, so she couldn't be very far. But by 8.30 that night, she realized she wasn't going to be able to locate her without help, and a really bad cold snap was set to come in soon, so she reached out for help to the police. She gave the police the description and a picture of Carissa and then told them that she had been wearing pink Crocs, jeans and a t-shirt, a black hoodie and a black vest and an investigation was immediately begun because the police did not believe that she had simply left on her own just because of the way she was dressed and that she had left her cell phone behind and the weather again was starting to turn so she really wasn't dressed for it and Anyone who knows a 12-year-old knows they would never leave their cell phone behind. Penny made a plea for her daughter's safe return in a police press conference.
1: I'm just here to reach out to my daughter. Um, Carissa, I just want to tell you that you have lots of people who love you and want you home. Your Aunt April is here. Your mom is here. Your dad, Shane, is Your Uncle Joey, your Aunt Chrissy, your friend Sarah's wearing sick, everybody in school, your grandmothers, everybody. Please just reach out to someone. At least call us and let you know you're okay. We all love you. If there's anybody out there that knows, has seen her or anything, please call. The other thing I want to say is I want to thank everyone in the community that's been a support, all the businesses we both work for and the community in general. Um, It's been very comforting. Nothing can be done to make things better, but it's comforting to have support. The main thing is I just want somebody to come forward. If not Chris, herself. Somebody. Let me know. It's hard to not know where your kid is.
0: Two days later, an unnamed man was driving on William Hebb Road in Hebbville, Nova Scotia, when he noticed something pink that looked like a sandal laying in the snow on the side of the road. And he remembered hearing a press release about a missing young girl who had been wearing pink Crocs. So he stopped the car to take a closer look, and it was in fact a pink Croc. He turned it over to the police, and they later determined that the shoe did belong to Carissa and contained her DNA. For almost two weeks, residents, volunteers, and the police searched for the missing 12-year-old, hoping that she would be found alive and safe. On February 9, 2008, just before the lunch hour, an unnamed woman and her son were driving on Highway 331 when she fatefully pulled over at a turnaround so that her son could have a pee. Her son, who was only nine at the time, went to the edge of the embankment that overlooked the Lehave River, and he saw what appeared to be human toes sticking out of the snow. The poor boy screamed for his mum, who came to see what he was screaming about, of course, and observed the toes peeking out. They flagged down a passing car and had him confirm what they had seen over the embankment because they just couldn't quite believe it. Maybe it was just a mannequin which we know, it's never a mannequin. The RCMP Major Crimes Unit and a detective from the Bridgewater Police came to the scene and found a young Caucasian female who appeared to be Carissa Bordeaux, based on facial and physical observations. Dr. Matt Bowes, Chief Forensic Pathologist for the Province of Nova Scotia, also attended at the scene and made the observation that the way the body was laying was kind of in like a splayed position, appeared that it must have been put there before Rigor mortis had set in. He believed that it must have been placed there then sh- very shortly after her death. The position of the body and the state in which Carissa was discovered was not released to the public and remained what they called hold back evidence. So this included also the manner in which her clothing was observed and a couple of articles of some missing clothing that she had been reported to have been wearing. There were ligature marks around her neck and based on observations of the body, again, the position that it came in, there was evidence to show, like in the snow investigators were of the opinion that the body was dumped at this location. So she was killed somewhere else and then dumped here. On February 13th, 2008, an autopsy was done by Dr. Matt Bowes. And the body was found like it was frozen at the time. So they had to delay the autopsy a bit until she could thaw. The body was positively identified as Carissa Bordeaux. The identification was actually made by Dr. Paul Miller, who was a dental surgeon, who looked at her dental charts and the casts of her upper and lower teeth. The cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation, and the method was strangulation. There, d- there was no other injuries on her besides the ligature marks on her neck. Carissa was found with her jeans, but only on her right lower leg, and her panties were down to her knees. So they kind of suspected that there had been a sexual assault. There was no obvious signs of sexual intercourse or any sexual assault had taken place though, so it was later ruled out. Carissa was found she was wearing her pink t-shirt, a gray bra, white panties with Winnie the Pooh design on them. Her blue jeans and one brown sock with like kind of like horizontal stripes on it and the other sock was found inside her jeans. The RCMP and the police simply just had no suspects. They had no leads on who could possibly have done this. So they kind of wanted to see if they could find out a little bit more about Carissa's history. Maybe something about her past or like a secret life she was living would provide a few clues. Thankfully, the police didn't find any evidence of a double life. There was no 20-something secret boyfriend, no online sexual predators. The only thing that they did find was a couple of notes written by Carissa, and she was feeling a little down and writing about her feelings. Both notes that they found were dated December 2nd, 2008, which the police believe were actually supposed to read 2007, not 2008. The first note read: "I'm mad because 1: Mum is engaged to Vernon. Two. Mum made me move here. Three: Mum broke up with Shane. Four. I want a bigger room. Five. I don't like living with Vernon. The end: My life is ruined by Carissa. The second read: "I'm sad because one, I have to go to school tomorrow. Two, I miss Shane and Tracy. Three, I have to go to bed at 9.30 instead of 11. Four, I live in an apartment. Five, there's no room for my stuff. Six, I feel crowded. End of story. My life sucks until we live in a house by Carissa. Now, a little bit of background. Penny and Paul had divorced when she was pregnant with Carissa. Carissa's an only child. Penny then went on to live with Paul's brother Shane for about ten years, but this didn't really seem to cause too much of any kind of family rift. It was, I guess just how things panned out for them. Um, I guess they just realized Penny was better off with Shane than Paul. Anyways, when Carissa was about was about ten or eleven, they split up, and this devastated Carissa, who loved Shane like a second father and I guess uncle. Penny then took up with Vernon, who Carissa didn't really like that much. Normally these notes would have been seen as typical 12-year-old angst, but the police started to wonder. And they remembered that on February 11th, at around three in the afternoon, Penny and Vernon's downstairs neighbors had called into police that they had overheard a little bit of a ruckus upstairs and had reported that it sounded like Penny, Vernon and Penny, were pacing back and forth in the apartment. Vernon was telling her that he was leaving her, and it sounded like they were in the bathroom and water was running. It sounded like um, Penny might have been in the tub. And Vernon was saying over and over, quote, Pen, how could you do this? And saying that he was disgusted with her, and then said... How could you do this? How could you do this? I don't understand. You got me involved. And that he wasn't going to help her. So that's a bit suspicious. On February 14th, Penny and Vernon were called into the police station by Constable John Elliott, who was um, with the Major Crimes Unit, And the purpose of calling them in was just to notify them that they had found Carissa and that they had identified her. But Penny and Vernon were actually arrested then for the murder of Carissa um, and they were interviewed. Now, Penny didn't give any kind of statement, but they also noticed that Penny didn't ask how Carissa had died. And trust me, that would be the first question you ask. A grief-stricken person always needs to know how the person died. But they could only hold them for 24 hours because they, they just simply didn't have enough evidence to get them for murder at that point. On February 25th, a man was at a playground that was adjacent to the swimming pool that was on Jubilee Road there in Bridgewater, and there's a wooden trash bin that's sort of beside the swimming pool area and he decided to check it to see if there was any like bottles that he could take back and when he opened it he saw this pink sandal in there which he didn't really think too much of at the time but when he for some reason when he was talking to his fiance about it they kind of remembered this thing about the pink Crocs, so they called in the police who came and looked at it, and sure enough, it was a pink Croc. They also took a black hoodie. The black vest um, was also found inside the trash bin, and the, the pink Croc that they found in there was a, the same size as the ones that Carissa had worn, and again, this, was, this stuff that they found in there was also part of this holdback evidence. Now, Paul, P- uh, Carissa's father, was also growing a bit suspicious of Penny because at the funeral, uh, she seemed a little bit more concerned about this sore knee that Vernon had than she was about her dead daughter. On, now, on February 14th, back when um, Penny and Vernon were in being held in custody, The police decided to do kind of a little bit of an undercover thing. Sometimes they'll plant. I don't know why people talk to their cellmates when they're sitting in jail, because a lot of times they will plant an undercover officer as a cellmate to try to get information. And so that's what they kind of did. Now, they didn't admit to anything there, but Vernon actually started to kind of, Get a bit of a bond going with the the police officer that was undercover, not knowing, obviously, that he was undercover. And they decided, so they were only held for the 24 hours, so then they were let go. But they decided to meet up on February 25th to talk about a little bit about how this undercover officer, who was kind of pretending to be a criminal, could help him out with his problem. Vernon was kind of given an opportunity to work with this undercover officer. And it was kind of under the guise that they were going to provide him work for a crime syndicate. And this was, it basically turned into like a wide-scale undercover operation, which is what we call here in Canada, Mr. Big Sting. This is a very Canadian thing where the police will go undercover. Usually, acting as they're working for a crime boss syndicate, syndicate and offer to get rid of a legal problem for a suspect. Uh, one of the conditions of this is that they have to tell the whole story of what they did in order for them to like cover all the ba- make sure all the bases are covered when they get rid of this problem. And it surprisingly works a lot of the time. I'm actually hoping to have on Detective Lacey Murdoch here in Calgary, who was the lead detective in Taylor's case. So if you're listening, Lacey, call me. She's done some undercover work in the past, so she would be really interesting to talk to about these Mr. Big Stings and a million other things I would love to talk to her about. Now, on April 1st, Penny and Vernon moved out of their apartment in Bridgewater and moved to Halifax. On April 16th, during a meeting with one of these undercover Uh, officers, Vernon made comments to the effect that he had nothing to do with the murder of Carissa, that he was asleep at the time. And then he also said that he suspected that Penny had murdered her daughter and that he was continuing to live with her just because he wanted to keep her close because he did not want to be implicated in the murder.
2: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy
0: Sandwich. the undercover officer was able to convince Vernon that they required the services of a female to assist in the work that they were doing. So Vernon, of course, asked Penny to do this, and a meeting was arranged. On May 8th was the three-month anniversary of the discovery of Carissa's body. They knew that she... Penny was really bothered by some of the media reports that had named her place of employment and commented on the potential value of DNA evidence. So during a meeting with the undercover officer on May 14th, Penny made a comment that she wished the police exhibit vault would burn down or blow up. So on June 11th, Penny met again with the undercover officer And now she was led to believe that this undercover officer had connections and could possibly make her problem go away. The undercover officer maintained that he was the head of this crime syndicate and that Penny would have to tell him everything that had happened to her daughter in order for him to understand her situation and then what he would have to do in order to help her out. So Penny then told the story of exactly what happened she said that her and Vernon were having issues together in their relationship because of Carissa and that Vernon had actually given her an ultimatum that it was either him or Carissa. Now, she definitely said that Vernon had nothing to do with the murder. And so what she said happened was that on January 27th, the day that she killed Carissa, she and Carissa went for a drive between 3 and 4 p.m. that day and they drove around for a couple hours. They went to Lunenburg and back and were talking and now Penny felt things were getting a little out of hand and that they were both very angry so they were obviously arguing and Penny said she, quote, did what she had to do, end quote. She drove to the Sobeys parking lot around 5.30 and went in to get some juice and bacon. Now, was still in the vehicle and was still alive at that time she says she called vernon to tell him that carissa was not in the car when she came out of sobeys and she just left a message on the phone she returned to the car put the groceries in the trunk and while she was at it she grabbed this piece of twine and put it in her pocket because she kind of knew what she was gonna have to do carissa kept wanting to get out of the car So Penny waited until it had gotten dark out. And remember, this is winter in Canada, so it gets dark a little bit early. So it would have been dark by about probably five o'clock and drove to the William Head Road and told Carissa that if you want to get out, get out. Penny says she couldn't let Carissa go back and tell people that she was this really bad mom. So they both got out of the car Penny went to grab her, but it was slippery. So she kind of pushed and tackled her and Carissa then fell on her back. The only thing that Carissa said to her was, quote, Mommy, don't. Penny admits that Carissa was really scared and that she used her knee on Carissa's chest to pin her down. Carissa's hands were under her so she couldn't move her hands and Penny used her knees to pin her down so she couldn't fight back. So Penny was face to face with Carissa. She wrapped the rope around her hands and put the rope around Carissa's neck and sort of pulled in a crisscross motion with all of her strength until she could no longer feel her breathing. Throughout all of this, Penny said she could feel Carissa trying to move her hands and that they were sort of digging into the ground. Carissa's eyes were bulging and her tongue was stuck between her teeth, and foam and drool was coming out of her mouth, and she could hear her heaving for air. Then she said, when there was no more breathing, she dragged Carissa's body and put her in the passenger side of the vehicle and when she kind of was like in a heap on the floor and then drove back to Bridgewater trying to decide what to do next. She put the twine in an empty Tim Hortons cup and then threw that into the garbage at the Tim Hortons on High Street. She then drove to King Street and to that turnaround spot, parked the car, turned the lights off and dragged Carissa's body out of the car using sort of her her jeans as leverage. So Carissa's pants, her pink underwear and her striped socks and everything came off as she was being dragged. And Penny thought that this was good because this, it would make it look like Carissa had been sexually assaulted. The hoodie she was wearing and the vest came off. So she just was left wearing this t-shirt with one pant leg in her jeans and then she just rolled her over the edge of this bank, knowing that the weather was going to get a lot of snow and that she wouldn't be found for a while. And Carissa landed amongst the trees and didn't actually hit the river. She got back in her car, took the hoodie, the vest, and the crock, and threw them in the garbage can by the Bridgewater swimming pool. And at that time, she realized, crap, she's only got one crock. So she knew that one of the the shoes was missing. She went home around 7, 7.30 and told Vernon that Carissa was missing and then called the police around 8 o'clock. And then Penny said in her admission to the undercover officer that she would do anything for Vernon and the thought of losing, her, losing him was harder than the thought of losing her daughter. As part of this undercover sting, she also actually performed a physical reenactment on the undercover officer showing him exactly what she had done. And then she decided to draw like a detailed handwritten account with pictures of what she had done. She also then traveled back to all the different areas to show them where she had dumped the body and where all the different evidence was. And she did tell them that she had been considering the murder for several days prior to actually doing it. And when she got back to Halifax, then she turned over an article of clothing to the undercover officer that she had mentioned that she had been wearing at the time of the murder. So this is not looking good for her. She's obviously spilled the beans on absolutely everything that she did. So on the morning of June 14th, Penny was arrested and interviewed by the Truth Verification Section of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I love that name, and I did not know that that was an actual section of the RCMP. The Truth Verification Section.
1: 34-year-old Penny Patricia Boudreau was arrested on Friday, June 13th in Halifax. She will answer to the charge of first-degree murder on Monday, June 16th at Bridgewater Provincial Court.
0: Throughout the whole portion of her interview, she made no admissions at that time. But then in the afternoon, they played her a little bit of the videotape of her meeting with this undercover officer. So at that time, she was like crap. So she basically admitted the same the same thing that she told the undercover officer of exactly what had happened. And of course, this brought back in all the holdback evidence that she had that the, the police had held back. So they knew that they had the right person because she obviously knew everything that had happened. Penny Bordeaux was charged with one count of first-degree murder and arrested on June 14th, 2008. Now, crowds of people booed at her when she was being moved from the jail to the courthouse and then from the courthouse back in jails when she back to jail when she was being arraigned. On January 27th, 2009, a candlelight vigil was held with over 200 people in attendance at the shipyard's landing market. On January 30th, 2009, Penny pled guilty to second-degree murder to avoid a trial. At that time, the justice, she has to take into consideration a couple of different things to decide the parole eligibility because second-degree murder is automatically a 25 years to life sentence but it has variable degrees of when you can be eligible for parole. So what she has to take into consideration is the character of the offender, the nature of the offense, and the circumstances surrounding the commission of the offense. So these are all the things that she has to do to determine an appropriate length of time before she's eligible for parole. Now, by pleading guilty, she does give up her right to any appeal, So under the character of the offender, I'm just going to sort of summarize what the justice said about these different things she had to consider. So Penny was 34 years old. She had no prior criminal history. Uh, She does have a work history at a local grocery store. Nothing in her background provided to the court either explained or mitigated her what she did. There's no evidence of any health issues, any anger management issues, cognitive functioning, drug use, depression, any inability to think rationally about the consequences of her actions. She's basically simple. She's capable of manipulation and pretty articulate in doing so. Any remorse that she has comes from the fact that she just has this really overwhelming case against her. She did not turn herself in. In fact, besides wishing for the police exhibit vault to burn down, she went as far as being prepared to accept help from an alleged criminal element in order to make her problem go away. Um, And it was only when she was confronted with the evidence that she confessed. A young, vibrant life full of promise terminated for a reason no more significant than Penny Bordeaux's selfish desire to guarantee a love life that had no room for a child. What is heart-wrenching and defies logic is that the simple act of allowing Carissa to be with her father or her maternal grandfather whose lives centered around Carissa and who loved her dearly would have provided her with that child-free existence. So, yeah, basically she could have... She had options. She had options. So as to the nature of the offense, um, it was unprovoked... It was vicious. Um, it shocked the community. Obviously, the children, like her classmates would have found it very difficult. Like it was just the the rippling effects of the crime were were terrible. Um, as to the circumstances surrounding the offense, there was planning, there was preparation. And then she was, she was a mom. So she was like what they consider a position of authority over um, a child. And now for motive, the motive is particularly disturbing to me. They feel that the motive was twofold. The primary motive was basically to eliminate her so that she could have her relationship with Vernon, that she saw that. It, she saw that she didn't have a choice. It was either Vernon or it was Chris. So she had actually been considering killing her for several days. And then, of course, she did a lot of things to cover it up. And the justice noticed that while she was recounting, like in the videotapes of her recounting to the undercover officer what she had done during this Mr. Big Sting, she showed like no remorse and could sometimes be described as even jovial about it. I'm just going to read you what the justice says to Penny quote, the court cannot assign value to the life of a human being in a sentencing proceeding, nor can I unfortunately bring Carissa back to life. Although I have read and reread the victim impact statements, I know the pain of grief expressed therein can never be fully understood by anyone. That Canaveras loss has unfortunately only been exacerbated today with having to hear the horrible details of Carissa's last moments as she lay staring into her mother's face, dying. On the side of mitigation, Penny Bordeaux appears before the court as a first offender. She waived her preliminary hearing and pled guilty to second-degree murder. At this, her second appearance in Supreme Court, the guilty plea is a public expression of responsibility for taking the life of another human being. In doing so, she has saved considerable state resources, but more importantly, she has prevented further suffering to the community and most importantly, suffering to Carissa's true family and friends. I say true family because surely, Penny Bordeaux, you can never call yourself mother in conjunction with Carissa's name again. And the words, mommy don't, from a trusting and loving Carissa are there to haunt you for the rest of your natural life. She sentenced Penny to a life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 20 years. The defense attorney and prosecutors discuss the case and the sentence.
1: This is a case where to give the family closure, to uh, give the community closure, to uh, prevent and spare the family the anguish of a trial... A life sentence for second-degree murder uh, is the same as a life sentence for first-degree murder. The question is when the person may first apply for parole, whether it's at uh, anywhere from 10 to 25 years or or 25 years. And in this case, we had arrived with a joint submission uh, at a parole ineligibility period that was very high, 20 years uh, and uh, felt that it was a fit and appropriate uh, resolution taking into account the life sentence regardless of whether it was first degree or second.
2: I can't call it anything other than a senseless act. I mean, the options were there. And, you know, for, for a parent to just make that decision, I still can't comprehend it. She had many options. There was many people around her that would have gladly, gladly, you know, had I known this was going to happen, I would never, ever let her go back. But I mean, what parent's going to try to, you know, say, no, you can't go back and see your mother?
0: Paul Bordeaux addresses his and Shane's relationship with Carissa and the effect on the community.
2: Carissa and I always had a special bond. I mean, and, and I feel a bit because I have things folded up, because my brother loves her just as much and spent more time than... than I did with her. I mean, he, he basically, he if I wasn't there, he was there by her side. So, I mean, he's kind of got left uh, on, on the wayside, but I mean, he was just as much of a father to her as I was. Well, you know what's made me strong? Is spending time with the kids around me, around the community and that stuff. And I mean, them little kids, the children were devastated. And How many children at that age have a best friend that's, that's brutally murdered? You know, you hear your friend's name across the TV you know, every day constantly when it all first happened about, it, about a, your best friend or somebody you knew. There's, children do not go through that very often. And from my working with the children and that stuff and talking to them, you know, that that helped me through it.
0: The detectives involved in the case had a hard time dealing. As I've said before, we often don't think about these cases and the ripple effects past the family. Police officers have families too, and it's, it's very hard on them, especially in cases that involve children.
2: We're, we're human beings too. Our, my members have uh, little ones as well. Uh, I have a daughter. Um, and this case in particular uh, resonated with all of them. Uh, and, but it, what it did was it strengthened our resolve to uh, bring uh, some closure to the community. Uh, and to the family, and bring justice for Carissa.
0: By October 2019, after serving only 10 years, she has been granted six escorted leaves to go to church every second month. The board stated, quote, The board notes your reported acceptance by members of the church congregation, your continued welcome by the church's staff and the evidence of the importance of spirituality as a continuing part of your correctional plan. Huh, kill your child and you're welcome at church. Love someone of the same sex and not so much. And that was the murder of Carissa Bordeaux by her own mother. Because sometimes a man in your bed is just more desirable than being a good mom or a human being. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you will be back next week for another case. As I said, this season is ramping up. I'm hoping to have some really good cases for you. And I have not mentioned in the last little while, but if you could do me a solid favor of giving me a rate, a review following me on instagram you can send me emails at a million other choices at outlook.com just keep in touch with me i love hearing from you guys and uh, i appreciate all your support and again thanks so much for listening